Hello again and welcome to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available online to the masses. You can listen to us live right now at RadioNorthland.org and tune in. That's an app you can pick up for your smartphone. But speaking of RadioNorthland.org, if you can't listen right now live and for some other reason, you know, something's hanging you up and you can't hear this interview live in the moment, you can go to the Rasslin Memories page at RadioNorthland.org. And it's a great honor for me to welcome my special guest. He's got a book that's coming out here uh hey it's coming out here soon it's gonna be one of the big spring releases uh on the docket for 2018 and this man was a former professional wrestler he was a referee he's worked under the hood as a mr x but you know where he really really shot to fame was the pro wrestling referee gone bad and boy did he go bad in the wwf in the mid 1980s this was the man who went from just mild-mannered Danny Davis to dangerous Danny Davis. Oh, putting He wasn't exactly a favorite on the fan favorites list, but you know what? This man is with us today to talk about some of his moments in the ring, outside the ring, growing up, and all the stuff that's been going on even today. It's a great honor to welcome the author of the book, Mr. X, The Life Story of Dangerous Danny Davis, the one and only, and boy, you're. I feel like a little kid again watching. In, uh, WWF and yelling at the crooked referee, but I ain't going to yell at him. He's the man and he's my guest. I'm going to show him his proper respect, Mr. Dangerous Danny Davis. Welcome to Wrestling Memories. Well, thank you, uh, Glenn. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you called me. I get a chance now, I guess, to talk to some of your fan, some of the wrestling fans of, 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 of late and some of years past. And hopefully there's a lot of interest still in my era. And I hope there's a lot of interest in wrestling today. Well, you know, uh, up here in northwestern Minnesota, you know, we were a, a real stronghold as far as pro wrestling back in the day with the American Wrestling Association. But, of course, the WWF had made many an appearance in uh, Minnesota down in the Twin Cities uh, for many years. And uh, you had a chance. Did you ever have a chance to uh, referee any matches in Minnesota? Or was it one of the places that you weren't uh, unable to uh, either wrestle or, or do any refereeing in? No, no, we wrestled in Minnesota and the Twin Cities down there uh, for Vince McMahon. However, I was under the mask as Mr. X at the time. I can remember doing a couple shows there, sure. We had a, it was a great place to be because a lot of great, great, great talent came out of there. Like the Henning, the Henning family came out of there, just to mention one. But there were so many that came out of that, that, er, that, that area that it was just a, a, a great, great honor just to go there and wrestle there. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, when you think about it, when Vince made his uh, his Vince Junior, I'm talking about, made his big move in '83 and eight, into '84 and '85, uh, one of the main territories of which he found a lot of stars that really uh, translated great to his audience and the worldwide audience, emanated from uh, Vern Gagne and the uh, AWA at the time. I mean, with the Hulk Hogan's and you know the Mean Gene Okerlunds and Jesse Ventura's. I mean, that's uh, a quite a a bit of a tie into the state because uh, those guys were previously here. So we we knew them so so well so when they came to town it was uh, a lot of familiarity too well that was you know that was it uh you know Vern Gagne was you know one of the top top promoters of his time uh it was a great great uh uh organization at, at, in its day and without people like that the Gagne's and stuff like that I don't think that wrestling would have been as 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 famous or as big as it was without the talent that he developed down there. And he's not the only one. I mean, there are other territories that developed some great talent also, but Vern Gagne and, uh, really, really brought, brought wrestling into the, the limelight, uh, as it were for his, in his day. 
And, uh, you know, you got to give him a lot of credit for bringing that around, especially from Minnesota, you know, the, the Twin Cities down there. I, as a kid, I always heard about um, uh, Vern Gagne in, in, the, in that territory down there. And it was an honor going down there, as I said before. Even even to be in uh, in that in that in that state was a great honor because you thought of Vern Gagne every time you went there. And you know what, too, uh, Danny, and you, you started your career uh, in the ring as a wrestler working under the hoods, doing various things. Right about at the time when, when things were really kind of starting to make changes, there was a, it was a very interesting time for pro wrestling because the sea changes were coming. The older guard, the ones in the gold, what was now considered to be the golden era of pro wrestling, were starting to age and they were starting to get phased out. And then, again, we were talking about Vince, the father and son difference you can go from, from Vince Sr. to Vince Jr., the way, the way Vince, the son, was integrating some of the younger talent while the older talent kind of crossed. There was like ships in the night, but you happened to be uh, on one of those ships. I mean, you got to see the sea changes uh, during your time coming up in the pro wrestling business. So you really did get to see a little bit of what happened towards the end with the territories and, and how that evolved into what the World Wrestling Federation at that time ended up being. Yes, I was uh, part of it when Vince Sr. owned it the WWWF with three W's and then Vince jr. Was, uh, in the process of, let's say, of taking over or getting it from his father. And uh, in fact, he did buy it from his father. I, I believe I'm don't hold me to that. Just speculation on my part, but you could see for the difference between his father and him. Vince jr. Had these big ideas, these, uh, these plans to, to bring wrestling into the, 21st century, as it were, where, and then came along uh, the pay-per-views where he was one of the first ones to do pay-per-views, I believe. And then the, the internet came and then cable came and then international TV came. And he had the foresight to see this and take advantage of these things. And that is what I, I can attribute to the wrestling world being uh, as it is now, as, as opposed to what it was then. And I was part of that. Yes, I was part of. I started develop when when Vince Jr. was in Cape Cod at the Cape Cod Coliseum. I saw him develop Titan Sports. I saw him develop uh, Tuesday Night Titans. He had shows. He tried a lot of different things before he hit on what actually is is the product of today. And I was part of that. And to see that transition, it would be part of that transition, was was a great part of uh, my life. And it's something that I will always remember. And it's something that, you know, being part of it is, is no one can take that away from you. And, uh, I, I'm very proud to say that I was part of that along with a lot of other wrestlers. Now you talked about the transition between young and old wrestlers and stuff like that, the older wrestlers and in the, in their heyday and stuff like that. But he let them, uh, run out there, their time with the WWE. And he always treated them fair as, as far as I could see. And without them, without the people prior to the Hulk Hogan's and all that, it, th there would be no wrestling. So those are the guys you got to give credit for. And I give credit to those guys because they made it possible for me and the people that were in that era to uh, actually develop wrestling into what it is today. So uh, to be part of that was, uh, uh, again, uh, an honor. 
And you know, and, and because of that, you're here telling your story about your latest uh, book, the book you're releasing about your life, the life story of Dangerous Danny Davis. We'll get back and uh, talk about some of the guys that you you worked with coming up in the pro wrestling business. Do a little word uh, name association. But what I really want to do is talk about this book and uh, how you got uh, hooked up with a guy that's really been helping out to put out some really good uh, wrestling books. He, he recently, before uh, the release of yours, had put out Brutus Beefcake's book. Uh, he did the, the book with Kamala. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Kenny Casanova. Now, uh, Danny, how did you get hooked up with Kenny Casanova? And, and when did this seed start? When did you get the idea, the early seeds that got grown into the, that became the idea of putting your life story in, in printed form? I mean, some people have talked about it. Some people have done it to varying degrees of success. But really, let's talk about how you got into uh, putting this, this idea into motion and, and hooking up with, with a gentleman like uh, Kenny Casanova. Well, it's a very emotional thing for me to talk about this only because of how we developed this book and what it's about, what the book is actually about. Now, Kenny Casanova from, from WOHW Publishing uh, approached me one time when I was with Scott Wilder Promotions up in New York when the uh, Hall of Fame was in New York in Albany. And we were there at the Hall of Fame and uh, Kenny happened to show up and I, he introduced himself to me and we got to talking and, uh, you know, one thing led to another, we went out to dinner. And he mentioned that he wrote some books. He helps people write books, wrestling people write books. And he asked me if I would be interested. And I said, listen, uh, I've heard about you, you know, and you've written a lot of books or a few books. And everybody's got a book out now about their wrestling career and they're telling stories about being on the road and stuff like that. And I said, I don't really feel that uh, me writing a book would help uh your career in any way so it kind of got dropped right there but he kept bugging me uh after after that and it took about a year year and a half and then finally we started talking about my past as a, as a street kid and how i came up through the the ranks of wrestling but at from the ground floor actually putting rings up uh, helping to put rings up and then doing concessions refereeing and then doing miss being mr x and and all these things. And he came up with an idea that maybe we could write a book, not about wrestling per se. We could talk about my career, but to write a book that because of my past and my street kid uh, days, my street kid days, that we could probably do a, a, a book that would be inspirational to young adults and, uh, and, and uh, older adults as well. And to make it so that Anybody who reads this book will get inspired to go for their dreams and to actually experience a dream is, is not magic. It takes a lot of hard work. I'm not saying that this, you read my book and you're going to be successful. I'm not saying that. But in that book, it'll tell you it takes a lot of hard work. It's a lonely, lonely road. It takes a lot of work ethic, which is important. And from what I have written in that book, we have put in that book, I think we have reached that, that plateau. We have gotten that point across. So this book is, can be re read by anybody. It's an easy read, but it's to the point. And I want to just inspire young adults and young people or even older adults who have a dream, who are, never have achieved that dream, that there is nothing you can't do 
if you put your mind to it, and there are going to be a lot of people along the way say you can't do it. When I started out, everybody told me I was crazy, that you would never be a wrestler. You would never be in, a, in an arena wrestling. You could never do this. You could never do that. And I never believed that. And I went for it, and I saw opportunities, and I took advantage of those opportunities, and I ended up being in one of the biggest, biggest events in wrestling history at WrestleMania three. And to that point, I knew that someday that I would inspire other people to live the, live their dreams and that I would be, uh, uh, a tool in that journey for them people. And I have written a book with that in mind. And I hope that everybody reads this book. And even if they don't buy the book, find somebody who has the book, read this book, and I'm sure you'll be inspired. And if one person or two, two young adults or a group of young adults reads this book and gets, gets inspired by it and lives dreams and achieves goals, then I will consider this book a success. Now, this is something that you could uh, like basically you could parlay into, uh, you know, these instructional things. You could go speak to, to the various people, whether to be, to, you know, the, the, the student age kids or to the older adults. I think this is something that you can connect in and share your power and your story of positivity in the in the midst of, you know, I mean, you talk about it and you're going to talk about in your book, a rough childhood, uh, overcoming bad decisions. I mean, you were able to rise above that. And I think that would be a greater extension of, of not only this book but to being able to to, to pay, pay it forward as they say uh with uh, you know speaking to the youth and you know high school and younger kids alike well it's it's funny you should say that because scott wilder promotions and kenny casanova and myself have sat down and talked about that and we've decided that that's what we're going to try and do we're going to try and bring this this book into schools or this program in the schools and i am going to have the privilege of going to these schools or boys clubs or girls clubs or just where kids gather and, and, and do, do uh, inspirational speeches. It's not going to be a speech. I'm going to talk to them one-on-one and I'm going to let them know just how hard it is to achieve goals. And I'm going to let them know that just because you have hardships and, and, and you, you have hard times and you're poor or you're rich, whatever, whatever, whatever demographics you come from, it's possible for you to achieve your goals. And if I can inspire one of them or, or a few of them, then again, I'm going to keep trying until I know uh, that I have helped at least a group of kids or even one kid uh, to become successful. Then I'm going to keep trying until it, it, it takes place. And I'm going to be, you know, uh, my pride is, 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 is glowing just thinking about the prospects of helping a child out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, getting this this book off the ground, too, is uh, no small task as well. I mean, you have your story. You want to get it out there. You want to inspire. But it also starts right there at uh, step one and getting getting this book out as far as publishing, putting this book together. And I know uh, a lot of uh, the, the trends here lately have been towards these uh, self-funded campaigns. And you guys are no exception to that. You guys were able to, uh, now that's in its past tense, you guys were able to get a Kickstarter to get going to help this uh, book uh, basically take flight yes sir the fans the fans i keep going back to the fans in my when i do these radio things because they're the greatest in the world bar none any sport wrestling fans are, are the best they have always been there they've helped us through our time the bad times the good times you could always count on the fans and we had a kickstarter again like you said and we reached our goal which is and i, I just want to thank everybody that invested in me 
and invested in this book. I want to thank them right up front. And now, if you really want this book, if you still want this book, you know, you can get pre-orders at dangerousdannydavis.com or Kenny, uh, Kenny Casanova, W-O-H-W Publishing, and you can pre-order the books there. And I, the one other thing I want to get before we forget about it, on, in April at, Wrestle, at WrestleCom, which is WrestleMania weekend, we're going to be at the Sheridan Hotel in New Orleans, and this is where I'm going to debut my book with Scott Wilder Promotions. And we're going to have some, some great stars with us. We're going to have Tugboat, which is also Typhoon and Sharkmaster, Coco Beware, One Man Game, Akeem, Bobby Fulton, Nikolai Volkov, and of course, Corporal Kirshner, and myself. And that's where I'm going to have my first debut of my book. I'm going to be the, the first time I, I have sat down and signed books for, for the fans, and I hope everybody can join us there. So there's many ways of getting this book. Almost definitely. And uh, people, it, it's not too difficult these days and you can get your hands on it. This is uh, going to be a, we're going to get into a, a little bit about uh, what the book was about here. We're going to talk about some of the things uh, that are covered, but we're not going to go into the great, great detail because people are going to buy the book. They're going to find out they're going to enjoy. They're going to love it. But we're going to kind of uh, branch out a little bit into the some of the areas that are covered, but weren't covered. Should we say as far as uh, the book goes in regards to your pro wrestling career and uh, some of the things you did both under the hood as mr x i talked about earlier how about the sea change of pro wrestling how you were actually able to work with some some uh, mighty legends of uh in that from the golden era you know when you got in and, and were working as mr x we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about the refereeing how mild-mannered uh, by the books danny davis decided hey that's just for the birds man and became the character dangerous danny davis but you talk about your work ethic you talk about about being a, and, and I've seen it in the notes, uh, the ability to be a multitasker. This definitely came through more more times than not when you were breaking into the pro wrestling business because the path you took to the pro wrestling business involved a lot of harder work and, and putting in the extra stuff. Uh, you know, and not an unfamiliar thing of setting up the ring, but if this was something that just wasn't just handed to you. You you worked and you used uh, your good work ethic and talk about that being just a clear example of, of a good work ethic and progress. Well, it took a lot of uh, hard work, which any 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 successful person will tell you. You have to work hard. It is it isn't easy. And when they asked me to do something or something needed to be done, I would be the first one there saying, "Yeah, I can do that." Or, or "Yeah, let, can I do that?" Or "Or sure, I can do that." And they say, "Well, you know, it's something with that. Have you ever done it before?" And you say, "No, but I can take care of it." You know, it started with with me putting rings up. Uh, the guy who I was helping put the ring up got fired. And they asked me if I would be, consider taking the ring around and putting it up. And I said, sure, I can do that. And I did it. And I never missed a town. I never missed a shot. I never missed a day that there was supposed to be a wrestling, no matter how far I had to drive or how difficult it was to get the ring in, in, into the arena. I always had people there to help me, or I got people ahead of time to help me, or I did it myself. If there's needed, concessions needed to be done or someone needed to bring the concessions up to, to the booth, where the people count them and set them up for the for the show, I would do that after I set up the ring. If someone needed chairs set up, I would volunteer. I would do that. If someone needed just to go out and get coffee for everybody, I would go do that. And I hustled, and I hustled. And anything that needed to be done, I took it upon myself to do it. And, and you know, it, it was menial jobs sometimes, and sometimes somebody tried to take advantage of it, and you have to stand up for yourself also, you know. But once they find out that you're capable of doing what you're asked, and you're capable of doing it well, then they start noticing you. And that's just part of it. That's just part of it. And then, of course, 
when something good comes up, then they say, you know, that guy does everything around here. Why don't we give him a little break and give him this or, you know, or, or let him do that and let him make a few more bucks or, or whatever. I'll, I'll be kinder to you. I'll give you a, as you were an opportunity and which I, which I had a lot of opportunities because of the hard work, as you pointed out. And it wasn't easy. And I came up through the ranks. I would do anything that needed to be done. In fact, I had a little, a little thing I could work on cars. So when the, uh, the ring truck broke down or whatever, I was able to fix it along the way. And, and, uh, I would sleep in the truck sometimes cause we didn't, you know, I didn't earn a lot of money to, to get a hotel and eat. And, uh, I never complained. I did what was asked of me. I did the best job I could and people started recognizing me. So when you say that I came up the hard way, it's, uh, it's paying dues. And that eventually led you uh, not only to, to putting up the ring, you got to be in the ring. And, uh, I mean, that's not just for anybody, any old schmo. I mean, this comes, again, another example of how hard you worked. You you, you got in, you put a mask on, and you started, uh, well, you, you kind of started to kind of learn the, the business, at, you know, on the fly in, in some sort of ways. I mean, you guess you picked up a lot by watching it, but I mean, you didn't go to a, the snake pit or had a, a formal pro wrestling educator training camp that you went to tell or just tell us about how you, you kind of developed that and you made your way to the ring from, from being that guy that everyone can, can rely on uh, behind the scenes with the ring and the concessions and being just a, a Jack of all trades. Well, again, uh, it goes back to me being a hard worker. Uh, an opportunity came up one night and, uh, you know, you, you observe and you take, uh, opportunities as they come. And one time an opportunity came up for me after I had been refereeing for quite a while, uh, one night in New York, uh, a friend of, well, a good friend of mine who's, who's gone now named Rick McGraw was, was a wrestler and he took me under his wing and, uh, I used to go to the gym with him and he would work out with me and we would do, uh, independent shows uh, unbeknownst to the WWWF and we would go to the shows and they'd let us work a, a match in the ring and he would work with me, et cetera, et cetera. And then I became, uh, one time on, uh, I happened to be in a dressing room in New York and, uh, we had a bad storm, like something similar to what we're having here today. And, uh, a lot of guys didn't show up. So Rick McGraw told the, uh, the agent, he said, you know, I work with Danny once in a while under a mask. And he said, Danny, you know, I was very surprised. And he said, yeah, he's not bad, you know. So they let me work a match in New York. I can't remember the name of the town, but it was upstate New York somewhere. And uh, and we had a pretty good good match. So after that, I got an opportunity to go to TV at Springfield. We used to do Springfield. We used to do uh, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, I, I went there one time, and I came in with a mask, and they let me work, you know, some dark matches, as it were. And then, of course... Once the, I started getting into that, the guys who I worked with, you know, and, and got coffee for and uh, set the ring up for and all that stuff, recognized that uh, I had a, uh, a an opportunity, recognized that I was able to, 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 to uh, actually what they call work in the ring. So they started asking to work with me at TVs, you know, and, it, and uh, then I got to do, I started getting booked. Uh, for regular shows to wrestle. And I wrestled some of the greatest, misdirect. I mean, I, I wrestled Roddy Piper, George Steele, Paul Andoff, Ricky Steamboat, Mike Watondo, Iron Mike Sharp, Jake the Snake Roberts. I mean, all of them 
Lanny Poffel, Macho Man, Honky Tonk, the Bulldogs. I wrestled a lot of good people. And in that time, I was learning how to wrestle and how to work, as it were. And then, of course, the rest is history. After that, uh, they saw my potential, and they gave me an opportunity to become Dangerous Danny Davis. And that's when my that's that's the short story of my career, <laughs> without giving too much away in the book. But well, uh, yeah, exactly. if you read the book, there's much more. There's much more in there. Uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> to go to go into it now would be you know a long, long, long time, and it would uh, take up too much time. Your time. But I want people to read the book and read it for themselves. Oh yeah, the, the the people, the cavalcade of guys that you were able to once you got you firmly established in the ring, working uh, the Doctor X or the Mister X character, and I mean, you talked about those stars, but uh, you also got to, to work with guys like you know Baron, like towards the end, like a Baron Michael Cicluna and a Swede Hanson. What was it like working, uh, the, you know, those guys as opposed to some of the younger guys that were starting to hit their prime? Uh, working with, I mean, you, you you've seen these guys for years. I mean the Sweet Hansons and even like to a degree the Rene Goulets. Paul Vachon. I worked with him. He was the first guy I was in there with him and uh, he, he called the spot. He said, slam me. Now, if you know Paul, Butcher Paul Vachon, he was quite mm-hmm. a big guy. And I said, I was a little hesitant, but I did what I was told. And uh, I lifted him up and I slammed him. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as you pointed out, Sweet Hanson. Now, it but that guy there was so strong and so uh, his, it, hitting him was like hitting the side of a wall. He was just a big, strong, strapping guy. And uh, he just, I worked with him and he took care of me. I think I am Mike Shop, I have to say, was one of the, the roughest guys I, I ever worked with, with that, with that armband he used to have on. Because, boy, he used to really hit you with that thing. But... The key is, and George Steele was the same. He was very rough, very snug, as they say in the business. And he liked to work stiff. And again, I never complained. I went in out there and, you know, I took the beatings, as it were, as they gave them out to me. And it, it was kind of like an initiation. I knew they were initiating me. I knew they were seeing just seeing how much I could take and stuff like that. But uh, being a street kid, uh, being rough with me was uh, right up my alley. <laughs> and I enjoyed every minute. But like you say, to work with those guys is a dream. And again, it goes back to the book. It's a dream come true. When I, re- when I was Mr. X, I thought my, I achieved my dream. And then I had no idea that when I started as Mr. X, that my dream would be expanded into, you know, the WrestleMania threes and dangerous Danny Davis. I had no idea that that was going to take place. And when that happened, you can imagine the, uh, the, 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 the pride, uh, that I felt to know I, I actually made it that to that level of, in wrestling. So a few less potatoes, probably, as you started to get that respect and uh, started to work with uh, guys, and you got that 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 circle of trust. I I, I, I take it. All oh, them old guys, them older guys. If you messed up, you paid, <laughs> and you paid dearly, and uh, you never did it again. You may have do it, you may do it once, but you you'll never do it again. And you, and now if you complain. When you get back into the dressing room, you get another beat in the neck. So you just you just realize that they were just they weren't doing it to be uh, mean, or they weren't doing it to, to hurt you. They were doing it to teach you that that is not something you do, and I'll, I'm going to give it back to you. But if you remember it and you don't do it again with anybody else, then you, your lesson has been learned. And they watch for that. 
because they'll go back in the dressing room and tell other guys, they'll say, yeah, he did this. And I give a boy, I let him know that that's not what, how this works. And other guys would want to work with you to see if you do the same thing. And if you didn't do it, they put you in the same position and you didn't do it. Then they know you learned your lesson and they know they show a little bit more respect for you just in the fact that you're uh, paying attention and that what you're doing is serious to you. And, and and the whole thing, I mean, not only with the respect amongst the guys in the ring, but you also had guys that were, were road agents of sorts that also had pro wrestling experience and also were a, a good way to, to get a good education. And you, you've mentioned in, in stories in the past, and I know you'll cover in the book, uh, the man, Chief J. Strongbow, in regards to not only just in the in the ring, but behind the scenes, uh, guys like that, and, and like an Arnie Skolan, too. Uh, these were guys that were also amongst the guys who were running the tail and making sure that things run on time. But what was that education too, that those guys brought to you as well as uh, your learning and getting the respect of, of, of the boys and you know, young and old in the locker room. Well, I learned very, very, uh, uh, early on that when they speak or they talk, you listen, you don't talk back. You don't, you don't, uh, respond to what they're saying because what they're telling you is a fact and there's no gray area. This is what happens. This is what's going to, you know, this is what's going to take place. And there's no gray area. You do what you're told. Again, it goes back to, you know, your work ethic, you do what you're told, you do it right. And you don't ask questions. And, uh, when those guys came into a dressing room and I don't care who you were, when they asked you to do something or something was supposed to go this way or, or that you had to be somewhere tomorrow at early to do, special interviews or, or whatever you just did it. And they were stars of the past. As you know, some of the greats, Jay Strombo, how can you come? You know, he was one of the greats, one of the best. He was so good that he could draw her anywhere. And, uh, Arnie Skolan, in fact, Arnie Skolan wrestled, Oh gee whiz, uh, for a long time. And, and one night I'll tell you a little short story before we go on here that they put him in a, uh, in Syracuse, New York, they were short and they put Arnie Skolan in a, in a pair of, tights and put him in the ring and it was one of the best matches i ever saw <laughs> because he he just his way of uh of working and selling and all, the whole part of wrestling and his psychology was so so different uh from what was going on at that point in time it just brought you back to the early ages and the early early stages of wrestling and it was a great great match so yeah there were some of the greats and you everybody showed them respect because of who they were now, when you were in the ring as Doc, uh, as Mister X, who you know, we talked about the guys that would you know throw throw the potatoes. But I want to talk about some of the guys that would be more of a night off as compared to to some of the guys that worked a little a little more on the snug side. Who were some of the guys that you could just enjoy? You really wouldn't have to worry too much about any uh, you know odd potato shots here and there. It was just easy. It was like not easy, but it was like the breeze uh, working uh, in the ring with. Who were some of those guys that come to mind uh, as far as good good partners to work with? In the ring jake the snake roberts he was great to work with you know it looked so good it was but he was so so uh uh so nice to work with paul ondoff he was a, another great guy that that you know you didn't even know you're in there with him you had to pay attention ricky steamboat ricky the dragon steamboat oh man he was great you know he was one of the, and, and mike rotundo you know he, he was a uh uh collegiate wrestler too. I mean, he knew how to wrestle and he was just so smooth and everything went so well. And the British Bulldogs, 
they would, uh, you know, as, as, uh, rough as everybody said they were, if you were on the ball, they were very, very, uh, there was a night off, as you said, you know, to work with them. And uh, there were a lot more that, that, uh, that I worked with that were really, really pros. And, uh, uh, it was a pleasure to work with, but that's just to name a few. Uh, most of the guys, uh, again, if you knew what you were doing in there and learned from your mistakes, most of the guys, as soon as they lock up with you, they know that you're going to, this is going to go okay. But if you lock up with them and you're real stiff or something like that, or they call the first spot and you mess that up, they get very frustrated. And it's not frustration out of meanness it's it's that's their business that's their livelihood and they're trying to get over and your job is to put them over and if you're not capable of doing that you shouldn't be in there with them and the, how you know that is they don't come up to you and say look you suck you, you were terrible you know they'll come up to to the next time it's your turn to work with them they'll go to the agent or, or vince even and say look i don't want to work with that guy he don't know what he's doing you know but if they start asking for you like they did with me as Mr. X, they all wanted to work with me because I did what I'm supposed to do and I was good at it. So again, it's work ethic. I worked so hard to achieve that, you know, and I got, and I did achieve that and guys started asking for me. And I, when some people start asking for you in that business, you know that you're doing the right thing. And it's such, it's, and you have so much pride in what you do just as they do. And they appreciate that. And it's on a level where you can't explain it unless you live it. We're talking with dangerous Danny Davis, author of a fascinating new book, uh, Mr. X, the life story of dangerous Danny Davis. And I want to talk about uh, not only the guys you work with, but I want to talk about some of the venues that you have been able to work with in the ring as a wrestler and as a referee. But that first time you say when you got into the ring at uh, a Boston Garden or a Madison Square Garden, uh, what were those memories like uh, to be in, I mean, not only a great big building, but something that's such a, a connection to sports history, especially in your case with the Boston Garden more so than even with Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden. But what was that like to, to be able to work in that ring and these and, and more big venues across the country as the WWF started to expand in the 80s? Tell us about that because there are big moments that you have in life and, and especially when you're in a pro wrestling business and being in those old classic venues, especially with the Boston Garden with it not being here anymore. What do those memories bring up for you? Well, I, again, I, we were talking about this funny thing. We were talking about this, me and some friends the other night. And I always, my whole time, even as uh, putting up the rings and stuff like that, I always heard about the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California. The Cow Palace, the Cow Palace, the uh -huh. Cow Palace. It, it, it always went back to that. All the old guys, you, oh, we worked in the Cow Palace. We did this and this. Well, <laughs> I finally got an opportunity uh, when Vince went out to California, and that's where we did our TV at the Cow Palace. And to be able to even step into that arena and knowing, again, I've heard it so many times, and, and the great, great, great wrestlers that worked there, the Pat Pattersons were, 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 Pat Patterson, he was one of the biggest draws out there. And, and Fred Blassie, when he was out there, the cow pal, man, oh man, the, 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 the uh, pride, the, the excitement, you know, and you try to be cool as it were around the guys that, you know, but that's, you know, you made it when you're there the Madison square garden, my goodness. When I walked into Madison square garden and I worked, uh, with, uh, 
in, in Madison Square Garden for the first time. One of the we were sitting in the dress room, and one of the guys came up to me and says, "You know, when you wrestle in the Madison Square Garden, you know you made it because all around the country, and even the world, Japan, and all those places, that is where they want to come. If you you tell somebody in Japan you're going to Madison Square Garden, that's it. You know that that's their that's their ultimate goal." to get to the United States of America and wrestle in Madison Square Garden. And you're there. And you're wrestling there. And you're on the card there. And you're in a dress room. You're getting ready to go out. Great, great feeling. Un- undes- indescribable. I-, I don't know how to describe it. You're living a dream. You're in another another level. You know, you just, I don't know. It's just exciting. Boston Garden. Now, I was a, a, a well, kind of a local guy. I, I lived in... Uh, in the area when I was younger, but I moved to New Hampshire and I lived in New Hampshire, but to walk into, I would say they considered it my hometown to walk into your own hometown into one of the biggest venues in the state. And you walk in there and you're on the card. And then, uh, you stand there in the middle of the ring and you're looking around. And the first thing that comes into your mind said, Holy smokes, look at me. Here I stand a street kid, not too long ago, in my hometown, in one of the biggest venues that I could ever imagine being in, other than the other two I forementioned here, but your own hometown, and then getting a win there, you know, and uh, the fans were great. <laughs> the fans are great, and sometimes you get a little uh, emotional just thinking about going there and being there, but you can't wait to do it. You've uh, succeeded in something that you were told your whole life would be impossible. And here you are standing in the middle of that ring and that bell rings and there you are, Mr. X. Wow. It's, it's indescribable. And I hope that some, anybody who has a dream can experience that just once in their life. Yes. And and, wow. I mean, you really summed it up there. And I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you talked about these crowds at these venues. Uh, You you spent the the better part here once the hood came off and you became the referee that uh, parlayed into the dangerous Danny Davis character. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But you got to deal with more than your fair share of some real nuclear heat as uh, first as the referee who who wasn't on the up and up. But what was uh, like, how did you deal with, was there instances with dealing with fans uh, at that time and what was that like kind of getting yourself in and out of the ring and sometimes out of the arena was there much hassle or, or what were you dealing with when you had that type of nuclear heat especially in that period where pro wrestling was just blowing up all over the place well <laughs> yeah there were some times that you know they would send phone in of course today if they did it they'd probably the fbi be involved but they used to call in and, and there'd be threats you know on your life and they say we'd be waiting in the parking lot for you and getting to the ring. That's where the barricades started coming in. Uh, before that, we had no barricades. We were walked out with somebody on each side of us, but we had ended up having to put barricades around the ring and, and, and uh, making an aisle uh, with barricades from the dressing room door, the, the curtain, all the way out to the, the, to the ring because these people were, were really, really, uh, <laughs> they were mad at me. They really didn't like me. And, uh, you know, I used to be, uh, a little bit uh, cautious about it. And then one day I was approached by somebody and said, look, don't be afraid uh, because you're doing your job. If they hate you, 
that you're doing your job and, and you're doing your job well, apparently. So enjoy it, live it. Just be careful. You know, don't let, don't put your hands on nobody, but don't let nobody put their hands on you and we'll have protection for you. And we'll have people go out with you, but it's a little scary when you're in an arena and all those fans are pressed up against that barricade, wanting to kill you, wanting to get their hands on you, but you can't let that bother you. You have to do your job. You have to do it well. And you have to get in and get out without hurting anybody or being hurt, you know, by a fan or whatever. And they, I mean, they used to throw bottles and cans and, and, and everything else that should be way back, you know, even at Boston Garden. One time they had to put a net up above the ring because of all the, they were throwing glass bottles, beer bottles and everything else in the ring. Was Philadelphia, but was Philadelphia the, like that too then with the spectrum back in the day? Was that uh, like that to a degree? Back in the day, it, oh yeah, it was brutal. I mean, they, you know, that was before. You know, some, some of those guys had some such heat and such, you know, that fans would uh, take it out on them. They would, again, throw bottles, cans, uh, and they would, you know, have knives. They would try and cut you. They would try and jump in the ring. But it was always handled. And then, of course, they implemented the the security. Where they hired more security. If you got caught throwing anything, you and your family would be thrown out. There'd be no questions asked. And then came the barricades, and the barricades got a little higher. We used to just put a, a regular rope around the ring with stands. And, and believe it or not, <laughs> that worked to a degree, you know, to keep them fans out of the ring. But as things got bigger and the, the uh, heat got bigger, my, my, myself included, you know, when the, when the heels got real, real heat, then they had to come up with an idea to protect them only for, you know, uh, security reasons and insurance reasons. I mean, because, you know, if something bad happened, I think that would be uh, the end of a lot of, uh, I don't know, things that could go on in the ring. So, I mean, up in, up in uh, Canada, they don't allow a lot of that stuff. You can't do a lot of things. You can't, uh, hit a referee or you can't, you know, go out on the floor and antagonize a, uh, uh, a fan or anything like that. And we didn't need to do that because we had all the heat we needed. All we had to do was stand in the ring and look out there and people would just react to our, uh, and that was due to, again, the, uh, dynamics of wrestling as it was progressing into the 21st century and also i mean to have alongside you not only uh uh jim you know jim neidhart and bret hart uh, with the Hart foundation but the fellow heat magnet and a guy who knew how to deal with crowds because of uh the tis run in memphis before going to the world wrestling federation at the time uh working with jimmy hart i mean that had to be an adventure in and of itself and also a learning experience because this guy he was a wild man he still is a wild man with his ideas and things that he gets going but that that type of energy what was it like to kind of uh work as- alongside uh, jimmy uh, in those days with the heart foundation well let me tell you i'm gonna tell you jimmy hot is the consummate wrestling manager uh wrestling person to go to for information he is without a doubt the cleverest guy i ever met he has saved me more times he would tell me before i went out you know, he would go out and look at the crowd and stuff like that. He said, just stay in the middle, Danny. You know, just go right to the ring. Don't stop. Don't, don't do it. Just go right to the ring. I'll be right behind you. Get in the ring. Once you're in the ring, you'll be safe. And when you come out of that ring, he said, stay in the middle of that aisle and I'll be right behind you and just get in and out. Don't stop. Don't do anything. He would know that by instinct, as you said. And he'd say, don't do this, Danny, do that, Danny. Don't do this, Danny, do that, Danny. And he directed me along through my career so that I could maintain the heat, but 
not get hurt or get anybody, you know, uh, to come over the rail at me or whatever. And Jimmy has saved me at interviews. Sometimes I would run out of things to say, and I was uh, just passing to Jimmy, and he would take over. He is one of he's the uh, uh, consummate wrestling uh, manager, and he, of course, you know, he wrote the music for everybody. He's wow. a great musician. He's uh, he's an intelligent, and, and, and like you said, it's hard to keep up with him. <laughs> you know, and you talk about uh, interviews and stuff. What do you can you remember of, of you know? I, I've heard t- stories of, of guys in the AWA talking about production day, where you guys are hitting market after market. Uh, boy, what was that like to get acclimated in and, and kind of start to find your way through the interview process? Because again, it, this was a worldwide company, and you had to get a lot of different uh, bullet points hit. You had to get a lot of uh, places that needed to get talked about for the big event to draw some tickets in that era where it was the ticket buyer not necessarily just the tv product where tv ratings uh, kind of supersede that today but what was that like with all of that production back in the day uh to get all those markets uh, happy and to uh, get your face out there well we used to do interview after interview after interview after interview we would days off where we'd go to they would rent arenas uh, or places uh, that we could do uh interviews and nothing was written down. It was all off the off the cuff. We would make our own interviews. We would we would know who we were working with. It'd be a general a general interview. You know, you just do it for all that. They would go out to all the, all the venues. We would do a specific one for Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, or whatever. And we would just say they would just tell us Sam Houston. You're working with Sam Houston in Boston, and you would come up with a with an interview. And usually it was one or two takes. You know, they just, they would let you know what they want you to touch on and you would go off and all these guys. And I learned, you know, by doing them, there was no one that's come up to me and uh, said, this is what you say. This is how you say it and stuff like that. It was just, again, you paid attention. When I used to get done with my interviews, I would sit there and watch the other ones. I would sit there and watch these guys do their interviews. I would sit there and study them. And Jimmy Hart would say, just watch, just watch. And, uh, after my matches, I would do the same thing. I would sit there and watch matches. And uh, when I was a referee, before I was a referee, I used to do, watch people referee. I, and I learned. And a lot of that is lost today and, uh, in, this, uh, in this wrestling world today. A lot of, you know, I go to these independent shows just for, for giggles, you know, to watch these up-and-coming kids. And uh, they, they just disappear after their matches. And I, I know the guys that are running, running the outfit. And I said, why don't these guys come out here and watch? Oh, they don't do that no more. They don't do that no more. But when you did an interview, getting back to what you're saying, I'm drifting off here, but get back. We did it off the cuff. We just had a, because in them days, uh, Glenn, you worked with the guy. Oh, gee whiz. You could run a, a program for two or three years, you know, with the same guy. So it was kind of like uh, uh, you just do what kind of match you were going to have and what the, uh, how, how it was going to work out. And, uh, you would just go off the cuff. You know, I, like me, my interviews were, I was a tough guy. You can't beat me at all. If wait till I get you in the ring, you're in the ring with dangerous Danny Dave. And then I go in the ring and lose because <laughs> if I had won, it probably wouldn't have worked as well, but I could talk a good fight, but you gotta, yeah, again, the interviews were, were off the cuff. Nobody wrote them out for you, and all that was there was you'd walk into the room, and they'd say you, you're working with so and so in such and such a town, and we need a general, general uh, uh, interview, or we need a specific one. So then that would be it. 
Now, you just mentioned in your example for hitting a bullet point in the interview, you mentioned the name Sam Houston. Now, you not only had a chance to wrestle uh, Jake, but you had a chance to wrestle with, with Sam. And that was one of the feuds uh, that kind of towards the end of, of your run before you went back into refereeing. Uh, what was the, the comparisons like? Because you said Jake was such a, a nice, almost like a day off working in the ring. What was what was Sam's approach to the ring? I mean, they had similar size, but there was uh, some major differences as far as the psychology went. Well, Sam was a, is a, is a great, uh, wrestler, a great worker. Him and I had chemistry. I mean, we knew what, what, what was, he was, I knew what he was going to do. He knew what I was going to do. And we worked so hard. We really worked hard because we, we were of smaller stature, as you know, we weren't, uh, no Jake, the snake or, uh, you know, big guys, George Steele's or, you know, all that, well, just to mention a couple, but we were kind of being used we didn't realize it at the time and uh we only in hindsight do we realize that you know when i worked with coco ware and sam houston and we were smaller stature and i believe and we got to talking about it uh we believed that vince was educating or had the foresight to educate the people the fans that in the future that the smaller guys would probably be the predominant uh, uh people on the card because of uh they ran out of big guys. I mean, uh, when I first got into wrestling, these guys were grown men in their thirties and forties and they were six, six, 300 pounds or, or, or bigger, you know, and in my day, when I first started out, if someone came to uh, a match and wanted to wrestle, if they weren't six foot tall or and 250 pounds, they no, they weren't even looked at, you know? So again, I think that we were used to educate, uh, the modern fan to the fact that uh, smaller guys uh, would be uh, the predominant leaders in the future. And I think that took place. You know, we only have a few moments here uh, this a- afternoon as we are, are chatting, and I want to talk, kick kick it into the more modern times, and uh, of course, this is the big season of the big leadoff up to, to WrestleMania, and uh, the, it really kind of gets started with a show that you were a part of that was initially a TV production that ended up uh, becoming just a, as big of an important piece of the WWE pay-per-view landscape in, in the years that followed. Uh, you, you got to be uh, in a first, well, the, the Royal Rumble. Now, talk about a concept that has lasted all of these years. That was uh, created. That took the old battle royal thing that uh, was done for so many years, but added a twist to it. But the Royal Rumble is hard to believe that we're sitting here and it's already over thirty years as we're heading through WrestleMania season. Yes, you know, this is my take on today's wrestling as opposed to yesterday's wrestling. Here we are, thirty some odd years later, talking about guys who were wrestling back 30 years ago. My question is, will we be talking about the people that are wrestling today, 30 years from now? I don't think so. I don't think that they're going to make the impact that we made because of the times we lived in. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. And I don't mean that to degrade anybody or take anything away from everybody because the talent is talent. There's some great talent out there, but we're talking about guys, Hulk Hogan's, we're talking about Macho Man, Randy Savage, Honky Tonk Man, you know, Sam Houston, George Steele, you know, all those guys, you know, that were, were way back then, 40 years ago. And, and, and you mentioned a couple that went back even further. Look at Paul Vachon. How far back does he go? And we're still talking about him. And here I am, you know, 30 some odd years ago. Now I'm writing a book about my life in those times. 
and before that. So it's the dynamics have changed so much, and I'm not taking anything away from anybody, like I say, and it's all speculation. Anybody will be talking about what's going on now 40 years from now in the world of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we, like I said, uh, the time is starting to wear down. I just want to ask this question. This is more of a lighthearted question, so you can take it uh, for what it is. What it is, you know, I'm not going for too many yucks, but I'm going to give you it to you. You know, you became the wrestling referee. Now, all I got to wonder is what what were the Dick Krolls and the Dick Whirlies thinking about? Like, did they think, man... I could have done this. I could have been Danny Davis. I mean, what was it like? You think? Yeah. yeah. No, not really, of course. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just giving him a fluff here, but you know what I mean? But can you think about that, though? I mean, you got to be the referee. I mean, you had your wrestling experience. You got to be the referee. And these guys, you know, have been around for ages waiting for, for some little spot, except, you know, every once in a while, uh, they may have to break up a fight at MSG during the, the main event or something. But... You got to be something that those guys, I bet, even, though, even before the Hebners got big, were a bit green with envy. Well, the thing is, I think that it was, there was something that it developed by itself with me. When I went into uh, a match, it developed, I, I would not favor either or the bad guy or the baby face, as it were, I would call it down the middle. Well, like I was supposed to, and people didn't like that. And someone along the way said, Hey, this, this may be a good idea. And, uh, I don't know who it was or how it developed. I mean, I had no idea it was going to develop into this big thing, but somebody along the way spotted it, knew it had never done, been done before, and took a shot. And again, it goes back to what my book says. It was an, an opportunity for me, and I took that opportunity, and I made something happen from it. And that is because of work ethic, hard work. And when you are uh, uh, a street kid or someone who can appreciate an opportunity, then you realize when it comes along, grab it and go with it and do the best you can. And what, what I'm trying to put over in his book is that idea so yes the guys dick crowley's and all of, they were great referees for their time but i don't think anybody had anything or any idea to put a referee and and put him into a main event or make him a wrestler and a successful wrestler being and 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 make some money with him and it worked i don't think it would have worked in their day i don't know could it have? I don't know. And if they were jealous, I don't think they were jealous. I think they might have thought, some of them might have been jealous, but a lot of them might have thought, hey, you know, it's about time referees got some recognition. Because, you know, referees were kind of, uh, I don't know, you didn't, didn't hear too much from them or about them during a match, you know. So I guess when you ask me if they were jealous or anything like that, I don't think so. I think that they were, I hope, I would like to think that they were happy for me, and I would like to think that they were all pretty pretty happy that finally a referee got recognized in the world of wrestling well it looks like our time is running down is there any uh well before we get to our last words uh let's talk about the book and where people can find it uh, this wonderful book about your life mr x the life of dangerous danny davis yeah you go on dangerousdannydavis.com and you can pre-order books there and in april at wrestlemania weekend at the 6th 7th and 8th of april we're going to be down in new orleans and Scott Wilder Promotions has set up a card, like I said before, with all these great stars. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be debuting my book. So anybody that's going to go down and be around in WrestleMania, I wish would stop by, pick up my book, and I'll sign it right there for you. How can you go wrong with that? I, I mean, 
that is just so awesome. It's been such a wonderful time here chatting with you, uh, Danny, and getting to know you. And you definitely, uh, I'll even going to leave the door open for any uh, future visits because we had so much fun just yes. uh, just scratching the surface of, of your, your career. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. I, we didn't want to give away too many things that were in the book because we want the people to go out and read this wonderful book, the story, a rather inspiring story of, of, of your life uh, in and out of the ring. And uh, do, we, do you have anything else you'd like to leave the fans with today here before we part? Yes. You are the greatest fans. You are the greatest fans in history. I appreciate you. I enjoy uh, entertaining you throughout the years. And I want to thank you once again for all the contributions to our Kickstarter. And once again, I just, I know I, I say it and say it and say it, but you're the greatest fans in the world, bar none. And when we get down to, to uh, WrestleMania in New Orleans, all I can say is be there. All right, Vince. HOF, Danny Davis. Make it happen, Vince. Make it happen. Thank you so much, uh, Danny <laughs> Davis. Uh, it's, it, again, it was a pleasure. Uh, and uh, boy, the, the time limit is already there. The timekeeper just says ring it. It's a Broadway. If anyone can go a Broadway on Wrestling Memories, the rematch is right around the corner. For Dangerous Danny Davis, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories.